We'll say, Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn now with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. We're going to be looking beginning in verse 7. The third question that we ask in the waters of baptistry is, will you fight the devil and his works? Will you fight the devil and his works? Are you willing to fight the devil and his works, members, ongoingly? Uh, Prospective members, would you fight the devil and his works as a covenant member of Mount Vernon Baptist Church? Unbelievers, do you understand that that is the witness of the church? Is to fight the devil and his works primarily as he attempts to foil, frustrate the plans of God for his people. In my experience, people make too much a talking point or too little a talking point of demons and angels for that matter. There's a lot of books and songs that take up the subjects, as I'm sure you're aware. But what of the systematic scriptural study of demons? How many of us have engaged in that? To fight the devil and his works, we must understand how he works. So that's the purpose of today's study. How does the devil work? And the benefits are obvious. The benefits are obvious. That you will be tactically more prepared and aware if you understand how your enemy works, right? I mean, just ask any, ask any coach that's ever scouted out another team. Ask any general that's ever sent scouts to scout out a battle. Read the book of Joshua about the heart and encouragement that we can do this and what happens when discouragement says we can't. We need to be aware of the tactics of the enemy, and we don't need to misstate them, overstate them, or understate them. So let's see today the devil's aliases, So we understand more about how the word describes them and the devil's attitude and adversaries in verses 7 and following. And I really want you to see eight precious words as we do our first reading of this text today. Eight precious words that are found in verse number 11. They loved not their lives even unto death. I want you to key in on that today. They loved not their lives even unto death. I don't know, your translation may not, if it's not the ESV, it may not read precisely the same. I'm sure it's going to have the same meaning. But I'm asking you to commit to memory those eight words with me today, this week, as we move on from this sermon. They love not their lives, even unto death. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, But was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver 
of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from, its, from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Notice in verse 17, notice that it says that he went off to make war. Notice in verse 7, now war arose in heaven. So the subject of war indeed forms the header and the footer on our text today in verses 7 and in 17. So let's dive into this, shall we? Let's see the devil's aliases first. We can see that in verses 7 through 10. I so appreciate Wayne Grudem's work and his systematic theology on this subject. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology has seven sections in it. Word, God, man, redemption accomplished, redemption applied, and then finally the church in the future. We have copies of it at the bookstall. Uh, we recommend that you study systematically through the scripture to understand a subject like demons or angels instead of taking some pop psychology meets a couple of pulled out Bible verses out of context literature like such as you might find at the end cap of some random grocery store. You would be better served to study deeply about what the Bible says about these things in a systematic theology than you would to grab something off the end cap. So I'm going to take you through a few things that he says today, unabashedly quoting directly from him. He gives a definition of angels. He says, they, angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. Michael is the archangel. Daniel 10 tells us this. Revelation 12 speaks of Michael. We find him mentioned in Thessalonians as well as in Jude. I'll quote it in just a moment, but let me say something about this archangel, Michael, and about the angels. They are created beings, spiritual beings, with moral judgments and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. This is Grudem's definition of what we call the good angels. I should say something else about the way Grudem situates his systematic theology, he and the study of demons and angels, it's at, tucked in at the very end of the doctrine of God of part two, and just before beginning to read about the doctrine of man and the fallenness of man, and before reading about redemption accomplished and applied. So it's an interesting place to put it. There's intentionality in systematic theologies throughout church history. Systematic theologians have built on previous systematic theologians, and that will happen in the future as well in all likelihood, until Jesus returns, because they borrow brains. And so he, there, is a, a, there is something to the way a systematic theology is laid out. Doctrine of God, at the end of it, is where we discuss angels and demons. Particularly the subject today is demons. Now, I, I want to take a quick excursion over to the book of Jude. Don't lose your place in Revelation, but it's not a long journey to get to Jude. Jude is just a few pages before, it's, well, it's just the page before Revelation. 
1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. And if you read in Jude chapter 9, you see, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, and I don't want to get into what the dispute about the body of Moses was about. That's beyond the scope of today's sermon. You need to be looking in the Old Testament as well as in 2 Timothy to get into that discussion. But I simply want to say, here's Michael, an archangel, contending with the devil. It seems to be a pattern. Let's just take a larger chunk out of Jude, shall we? I mentioned this last week. I think I'll just do it today. Look at Jude chapter, or I'm sorry, Jude verse 5. There's just one chapter and following. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. You see the problem? Verse 6, there were angels that did not stay within their position of authority. Key in on that. That's critical to understanding our subject matter today. There were angels that did not stay in their position of authority. It says, but they left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve an example, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So authority, sexual immorality, is indicative of rebellion against God. Verse 8, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Their dreams are elevated above Scripture, above Holy Writ. Verse 9, But when the archangel Michael, subject matter for Revelation 12, 7, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Just really stringing together a whole bunch of Old Testament stories there. It's like a whole bunch of stuff. Verse 12, They are hidden reeves as your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees, in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We've talked about how stars can be representative as first among equals type leaders in churches and shepherds and whatnot. Verse 14 through 16 here in Jude. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. I think they want to get across ungodly. And all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So it's, uh, we, we're all prone to sin, but we want to make sure we're not described as Christians as grumblers, right? We don't want to be malcontents, do we? We need to see more of what God is doing through His people in the world than the devil. We don't need to constantly be bellyaching about all the woes in the world. We need to see what God's doing in the world, even though we live in the midst of woes. And we need to praise Him for what He's doing. And we need to trust Him to do things in people's lives. And we need to, to tell them the gospel and not depend on our psychological inferences, right, in order to get people saved. We need to tell them the truth of the Word of God and tell them about the grace of Jesus. And as, as one pastor said earlier this week, I heard him say, uh, trust the grace to save them and the truth to set them free. That's good words, I thought. Grace of God will save them, the truth will set them free. We all know the truth hurts, right? 
but it only hurts as much as it has to. God is, is not punitive in that way. The truth only hurts enough to get that cyst out of your body and to let you be healthy. Sin is the cyst. It must be removed. And God is a precise surgeon. And He comes in to remove that which does not belong in the life of the believer, and that is sin. And so we're not grumblers and malcontents following our own sinful desires. We're not known as loudmouth boasters. In fact, we are the ones that lets our words be few. And when we do speak, we speak as the Puritans admonished precisely. We don't speak imprecisely or flamboyantly. We don't use hyperbole or exaggeration, plagiarism. We speak in such a way as not to lie and to imitate the father of lies, but rather to imitate our father who always tells the truth. That though it hurts for a moment, what does it do? It sets us free, then you've been set free to be free indeed. This is the message of Jude. Now, Second Peter also mentions something about these angels, and that's just a few pages back as well. In your Bible, Bible you'll have First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third, John, Jude, and Revelation. So very near the end of my Bible, I read to you from Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. For if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if... He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over his lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. See those twinnings? That was in Jude as well, right? They, they defile authority. And they despise authority rather than defi- and enter into defiling passions. It says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against these before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, even in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast insatiably for sin. They can never have enough of it like Romans 1. More and more and more. Sin, you just have to keep feeding the cancer if you're going to feed it because it just keeps growing. And God wants it out of you. He sets you free to be free. The road to sanctification hurts sometimes, but it is glorious and it is fulfilling and it's better. It says, verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for, I already said that, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls, that's bad. Enticing unsteady souls, that's going to go on. It's going on. We've seen it in our own congregation. They have hearts trained in greed, what they can make and get for themselves instead of what they can give. Remember, we love not our lives even unto death. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's badness. I could go on, but we won't. Let's move back to Revelation chapter 12. These angels cast away. It says in Revelation chapter 12, if you would go back there, or if you had your, your bookmark, it's, it's just a flip to there. It says, War rose in heaven. Michael, who we've now learned is the archangel, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And we hear the dragon, we understand the dragon to be Satan or the devil the chief of the demons. So this is the 
Satan is the head of the demons. He was defeated. There was no longer any place for him in heaven. It takes us through verse 8 of Revelation chapter 12. Now, I want to give you Grudem's working definition of demons. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world, or they're fallen angels, as we have read. Now, Grudem argues that there are a whole bunch of angels that remind us of the spiritual realm, lest we get caught in a naturalistic mindset only, as we get richer and richer and more sleek and sleek. He says, Hebrews 12, 22, reminds us, states that when we come to worship, we come into the presence of angels innumerable. Or Hebrews 13 says, you never know when you're offering hospitality to a stranger when you might be entertaining angels. There is a, an angelic realm of which we are to live aware of and make proper inferences about. Remember, not like the end cap in the grocery store, but what does the Bible say? Grudem says that de- demons are evil angels who sinned against God and now continually work evil in the world, working to try to frustrate the plan of God in the lives of God's people. Now, when did this happen? Well, Grudem argues that when God created the world, Genesis 1.31 says, He saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. This means that even the angelic world that God had created did not have evil angels or demons in it at that time. But by the time of the text of Genesis 3, we find that Satan, in the form of a serpent, another alias for Satan, that serpent was tempting Eve to sin. Let your sanctified mind go back and think about that. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. He's tempting Eve to sin. You might remember the nature of those temptations. Did God really say that? Can can you really know what God said? Is He really good? Is God good if He's trying to keep that thing from you? Questioning the veracity of God's words and the goodness of God's character. And that's always a tell sign it's from the devil, right? Always a sign that that's coming from the ancient serpent. And we are indeed engaged in an ancient battle. The text says, therefore, sometime between the events of Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1, there must have been a rebellion in the angelic world with many angels turning against God and becoming evil. And as we've already seen, the New Testament speaks of this in two places, Jude and 2 Peter. We've read that already. And they're being held in eternal chains in the gloom until the judgment of that great day. So the emphasis is on the fact that they've been removed from the glory of God's presence and their activity is restricted. But Grudem rightly notes the text does not imply either that the influence of demons has been totally removed from the world or that some demons are kept in a place of punishment apart from the world while others are able to influence it. Rather, in Peter and in Jude, they tell us that some angels rebelled against God and became hostile and opponents of the word and they continue to oppose the word in one form or another. Their sin seems to have been pride, rebellion of authority, not staying in their proper place and being ousted from their place. Their sin seems to be a refusal to accept that assigned place, for it says in Jude 6, they did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling. So as we've already said, Satan is the head of the demons. That is the Hebrew word, Satan. The Greek word is devil. It appears only in the New Testament. We see it beginning in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. In Matthew 4, 1, you may recall in your sanctified mind that Jesus was whisked off to the desert after his baptism, and in the desert he faced the devil, did he not? He was tired, no doubt hungry. And we know in Gethsemane, as well as in the desert, Jesus had the power to command angels to come to his disposal, didn't he? Remember he tells tells 
Peter not to cut the ear off of the soldier in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to. Well, is he just imagining these legions of angels, or is Jesus telling us they're really there? The latter, right? So he could just call them down, but he doesn't, does he? He shows us, as Martin Luther would say, the way of the cross in the face of the way of glory. He shows us what it looks like to be a Christian and not love our lives even unto death. Satan is the head of these demons, the devil, as he is called in Matthew 4, also here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Let's read that verse. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, and the dragon that was thrown down from heaven is the ancient serpent. Ancient meaning Genesis chapter 3, describing a fallen angel and, the, and quickly there the fall of man. The doctrine of man plays in there. And it says there's no longer, or I'm sorry, it says that that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, Greek word and then Hebrew word, the deceiver of the whole world was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now let's think a little bit about verse 9 there. It says that he is the deceiver of the whole world. So it, it begs to reason we need to wrestle with what it means that he's the deceiver of the whole world. What is the scope and sequence of the authority of the devil in this present age? Satan is the head of the demons. He's known here as the serpent, the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, just before that great chain of salvation is elucidated, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. In 1 John 2.13, the evil one is described. He's described as the evil one. When Jesus says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not on the side of God, but on the side of men, Matthew 16, 23. He's recognizing in that moment that Peter's attempt to keep him from suffering and testifying and dying on the cross is really an attempt to keep Jesus from obedience to the Father's plan and commands. Jesus realizes that opposition ultimately does not come from Peter, but from Satan himself. So Satan is very much at work in the world at that time through Peter. And we stand to understand that Satan can trick us into falsehoods, misunderstandings of Scripture, and sadly, even executing portions of his will through the believers. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2 warns us that we can be ensnared in the trap of the devil, but if we repent and turn to the truth, we can be rescued from that trap. And so it's right for us, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, if you want to read about that, it's right for us to recognize in believers when they have strayed from the truth and into falsehoods and to correct their misunderstanding of Scripture. That's our occupation as believers, is to hold to the testimony of Jesus and to obey His commands. Not hastily or ungently, but nonetheless truthfully and directly. We are about understanding God's revealed will for our lives through Scripture and helping one another not only to understand it, but to live by it, to apply it for our good and for His glory. But we need to understand that Satan and his demons, of which he is the head of, are involved in the world trying to frustrate it. John frequently uses the world or this world to refer to the present evil world system in opposition to God's plans, referencing the world of which Satan is the ruler in John 12, 31. 
Uh, I just want to say right here at this point, again, like last week, I can't tell when it's Grudem and when it's me because I'd write a sentence and then comment. And write a so I just go read that whole chapter 20 and you decide because I don't want to plagiarize. So there it is. I've got like 18 different notes here. Some of it's Grudem, some of it's me. I don't know. I'm kind of like going back and forth with him, but I think some of it's worth sharing. Grudem, or I'm sorry, Scripture rather, does not teach that Satan rules over the entire world. Hear this. Italicized words. Scripture does not teach that Satan rules over the entire world, but that he's the ruler, that he's the ruler over the system of sinful opposition to God that we experience. Consider comparing Paul's, Paul's phrase, the God of this world, in 2 Corinthians 4, that states of those who have their eyes veiled to the gospel and their ears plugged. Here's what it says. In their case, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So you see, see this God of this world, in the case of unbelievers, has blinded the minds and keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, and this is why it's so important that when we're frustrated by the the blindness of unbelievers, that we don't resort to our psychological inferences or pop psychology to try to get them to Christ. The Lord's been helping me understand this through Scripture lately. We need to be very careful, and I do it too. I'll be, I'll be talking with someone, having a good conversation with them. I won't, I'm not sure that they're regenerate. I'm not sure they're believers. And I'll have a tendency to address the symptoms instead of the root. They don't need my psychological inferences or yours either, primarily. What they need is the proclamation, not of ourselves, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a servant of that gospel. And verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, that miraculous thing that God did in creation of light from darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So we didn't do it to ourselves and we won't do it to them. We have seen the light, and so we share the gospel light with them. And it's enough. It's enough. Tell them about what Christ has done for you. And as often as possible, use scriptural language and watch how God gets the credit for God's work. It's not about us figuring out the psychology of people, however helpful that might be as an academic discipline. I'll tell you the psychology of people. They are blind rebels against God until God intercepts them and saves and regenerates their cold, dead heart. And you were too. So hear me, Christian. Don't be egotistical about it. Praise Him every Sunday and the Wednesday in between, Monday and Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And hear me, unbeliever. You're blind and you cannot see what you cannot see. But the truth of the gospel is this same for you as it is for me. If you'll repent of your blindness and of your sin, and if you will trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he did for you what you can't do for yourself, you will be saved. Darkness to light. He did it for you. He did it for you, rebel, same as he did it for me. The only difference we have is that God has opened my eyes I see it, and I receive it, and I speak about it. That's it for you. That's it. Ask the Lord to open your eyes and see it and believe it and tell people about it. Love not your life even unto death. Live for this gospel. 
Seek to obey the commands. The first one's in the baptistry. Seek to obey the commands of the Lord. And as you're following the Lord, testify about the Lord. Not about your understanding of psychology, your understanding of philosophy. Testify about the Lord. Tell them about the Lord. And that makes all of the difference. We lift high the name of Jesus, and the Bible says He will draw all men unto Himself. We must stay on message, as I've said in the past here. We must realize the ruler of this world is ruler in part, not in whole. No matter how odd, how, how, how against the odds this whole train of thought seems, this grandest epic that's ever been told ends with an eagle swooping down to save us in the last minute. I'm sure that some of you have heard that before as you've read through works of literature. One author wrote, Dragons have soft spots and get defeated by an arrow. Satan is not different as a dragon. Slain he is and slain he will be, but the battle wages on now. So recognize the enemy's aliases today are indicative of his destination and his sentencing. These aliases of the Lord, the ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. That's the alias is just used right here in Revelation 12, hence our study. And secondly, recognize not just the enemy's aliases, but the enemy's attitudes. The enemy's attitudes. The enemy's attitude in a nutshell is he is angry. He's furious, it says in verse 17. He's defined, described best by anger, it seems, among other things, but anger. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this because I completely illustrated it last week with regard to a prosecutor and a defense attorney and I'm not going all the way back through that again this week. If you weren't here and you want to hear about that illustration, I'm glad to share it with you. But just a very quick summary is that you are the defendant and Christ advocates for you and gets you off. That's the, that's the whole thing because he substitutes in your place. And a whole lot more words, but that was it. So what we want to key in on here today, though, here in our study of angels and demons, and particularly demons, is the demons and the, the head of the demons, Satan, is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses day and night. You know, how, you know how accusation can derail a career, don't you? It doesn't even have to be true, does it? It just has to be said over and over and over again, and it has to affect some kind of result. 1 Peter 4 tells us this is going to happen near the end of the chapter, and it tells us that when we're facing these kinds of accusations, these kinds of frustrations from the enemy... We need to make sure it's not because of some sin that we did. Let's make sure we're suffering like Jesus did in sinlessness with regard to that accusation. But we should not be surprised at the hurling of accusations at us because we are Christ's. Disappointed? Sure. In pain? Absolutely. Surprised? No. Revelation 12 removes the element of surprise from the accusation of the enemy against us. We have a target on our back the same as the woman does. Look down at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head of, a, head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with the seven heads and ten horns and the, seven, the heads of seven diadems and the tails 
swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast him down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. So he's, just, he's angry at the woman. And she gave birth to a male child, we said last week, who was one to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God. The ascension of Christ is being depicted there and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God to be nourished for a time, a, a half a sabbatical cycle, three and a half years, 1260 days. And we, we see this concept again in our text today. If you look down at chapter 12, verse 14, it says that she might fly into the wilderness She's to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. So times will be two years, so three and a half, for three and a half years. So indicative of a shorter period of time. We'll speak more about that when we get to Revelation 20. But the simple fact of the matter is, the serpent's time is short. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. This is why he's so angry. That's why his attitude is anger. It says, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He's aware of the limited scope of time that he's going to have to do his bidding. And he is angry with the children of the woman. Now, we, we see blended metaphors here between Eve and the first promise in Galatians 3.15 and also between the mother of Jesus giving birth to the Christ that's now ascended into heaven with a promised return. But what we need to see for application is the implication of this is about us. Look at verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. And how does he apply the fact that he couldn't kill the woman? couldn't kill the Christ child, he goes off to do what? Make war on whom? The rest of her offspring. Well, this spermos, this offspring, is the seed is described in, in Galatians chapter 4. It's the seed of the saints. Tertullian rightly said the seed of the saints is the, uh, the seed of the saints. The blood of the saints is the, help me, who knows the quote? Tertullian, I just lost it. The, the blood of the saints is the blood of the martyrs. I lost it. Some of you know this quote. I know you do. The blood of the saints is the seed of the martyrs. That's it. The seed of the martyrs. There you go. That's it. Waters the seed of the martyrs. So the saints, when they're killed, it waters the saints, the, the waters the soil, so that the martyrs can, so that the new believers can grow up. The blood of the saints is the seed of the martyrs. That's it. No, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. That's it. I got it totally backwards. The blood of the martyrs. You're going to go look this up. Tertullian, the church father, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. Seed. Spermos is the Greek word for offspring that's used here. It's used different places in the New Testament. You can find it, and we you know, don't need to get into the range of meaning of that word. But I'm simply to say this. The dragon, Satan, the serpent, is at war with us, the born-again offspring of the Christ child. He couldn't get the woman, so he comes after us. And so the devil, what we see in this text is angry, 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 and he comes after us. So we've seen the devil's aliases, and we've seen the devil's attitude, which is one of anger. But, but just, before, you know, just before I give you this very last point, I want to say one more thing about his attitude. Last point would be his adversaries, which is us. I've kind of already eased into it, but I want to say something about his, his attitude. It's so very important for us that we check our anger at the door of the church. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible talks about righteous anger or indignation. There is a time in which we should be angry at certain things. But I really don't want to talk about that today because I think, by and large, the attack of the enemy, well, is clearly not 
against us for being angry about the right things. The enemy tries to foment anger in us about the wrong things. I was reading, I read this probably 15 years ago, 12 years ago. It's a book by Russell Moore, Tempted and Tried, The Temptation of the Triumph of Christ. There's some good paragraphs in here about temptation, the nature of the way that the enemy comes at us. Listen to, listen to a couple of things that he writes. He says, Moreover, many of us tend to classify pride and status-seeking as something that befalls obviously arrogant people. You can probably think right now of someone in your life who is that guy, the haughty know-it-all who begins every other sentence with the word, Actually, you know what it is to hear that woman in the department store tell her friends, I see you all, and I'll see you all in a little while. I have to shop in the petite section now. These obvious manifestations, though, aren't the only aspects of human pride. This is, after all, common to man, 1 Corinthians says. Regardless of your level of self-confidence, you are grappling with this temptation right now unless you've already succumbed to it. Envy is a form of pride. You don't have to succeed at one thing to see the kingdoms of glory you think you ought to have and pine for it inside. Some of the least prideful people you know, those paralyzed by worry, anxiety, or indecisiveness, may be the most prideful for exactly the reasons you think they're not. Then he says this, and I'm getting to the point of, of anger in just, just a moment. The satanic powers are watching you. They're peering into your life to see what catches your attention, what puffs up your ego. They're evaluating what kind of Babylon you want to build for yourself, and they'll make sure you get it. Satan is as ambitious for your goals as you are, maybe even more. He'll give you the power you want, the glory you crave, so long as you will fall down and obtain it his way. The powers don't care if we are respected or influential or moral or even sometimes conservative as long as we'd rather be magnified than crucified. Satan doesn't mind if our values are right side up so long as our crosses are upside down. End quote. Now that speaks to misplaced anger. What are you angry about? Examine it. It's true that some anger is righteous. But if you can be described as perpetually furious, who does that seem more like? Let's me and you take our anger to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, help me see the 5% that's righteous and help me extradite the 95% that's not. Anger is a secondary emotion, rightly described. And the Bible says to be angry and not to sin. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and don't sin. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, which is a way of saying, don't perennially harbor your anger. All of us get angry. Well, we sin with it because we didn't deal with it. It festers. And anger is a descriptor of the attitude of our enemy. In this text today, we are learning about the enemy's aliases and attitudes, and finally, the enemy's adversaries, us. We're the seed, with a quote I couldn't find a while ago. We're the offspring. We're the, the, the child, the children, the sons of God that, that he hates. He despises us because of what we represent, because of whom we represent. Ministry, Grudem said this, ministry in the New Covenant age is characterized by triumph over the powers of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 say it. It says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So it's not that we don't sin, but we don't practice it. Don't be a, a sin practicer. 
Practice sanctification. Don't practice sin. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. From the beginning of what? From the beginning of the fall of the angels, the fallen angels. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? To destroy, see it? Was to destroy the works of the devil. What did I say to you in the baptistry? Are you willing to fight the devil in his works? Yes. Why? Because the Son of God showed up on this scene. His incarnation was for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. And how did he do it? He did it through dying, didn't he? How do we share that gospel? We, do, we love not our lives even unto death. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, tells us that, that the, reason, I said the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of His devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed. Same word, abides in Him. And He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. Why can't you keep on sinning, Christian? Because you've got a conscience problem about it. Well, Christian, why do you have a conscience problem about it? Because you've been born again of God. You're His seed. The Spirit is in you. Why does the enemy come after you? With his descriptions from his alias, the way that he does aliases, the way that he does as a fallen angel. Why does he come after you in anger? Why is he so mad at you? He's mad at you because you've been born again. He's mad at you because you don't make a practice of sinning. Because your conscience bothers you when you do. He's mad at you because his time is short and yours is long. He's mad at you because he's losing and you're winning. But, but don't be surprised and caught off guard by his fury. Satan's fury is real. Satan, Grudem says, is the originator of lies, murder, deception, false teaching, and sin generally. It seems reasonable to conclude that the New Testament wants us to understand that there is some degree of demonic influence in nearly all wrongdoing and sin that occurs today. Not all sin is directly caused by demons, but deception is a factor in all sin. But, even though Satan hates the cross of Christ because he was decisively defeated forever there, even though that, because the blood of Christ speaks clearly of his death, we read in Revelation of those who overcame Satan by Christ's, blood's, by Christ's blood during conflict in this world. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Revelation 12, 11. That's what we've read today. We've conquered by the blood of the Lamb, by his atoning sacrifice for us, and the word of our testimony. We keep telling people. Remember, we keep telling them the word of the testimony. Because of Christ's death on the cross, our sins are completely, hear me, completely forgiven. Because of Christ's death on the cross, our sins completely forgiven. And Satan has no rightful authority over us. None. Zilch. Zero. None. So the devil can't make you do anything. You do what you want to do because the lies seem preferable in the moment to the truth. But you must return to the truth, repent of your sin, because the truth will set you free again and again and again. The demonic forces are very much at work in this world. But hear me, because of Christ's death on the cross, your sins are completely forgiven. And Satan has zero rightful authority over you. Isn't that good news? He has no authority over your life. You are God's. He has bought you at a great price. He's making provision for you like wings of a great eagle, the same as the eagles, the wings of a great eagle helped God's people escape 
from the evil Egyptian slavery and get into the promised land. John MacArthur writes, he says, that these are not actually bird's wings, verse 14, but a graphic depiction of God's providential protection of His people. Wings often speak of protection. Think of eagles, probably vulture-like griffins. They were the largest birds known in Palestine. So the, the tactics of the devil, verse 15, is to speak words. Words come out of his mouth like a river, deceitful, lying words that would sweep us away if we weren't the elect of God. But it's not possible for the elect of God to be, to be swept away. Matthew 24 says, The enemy has no rightful claim on you. We are a cadre in conquest. We're the church. We're a cadre in conquest. We are a part of what the Lord is doing. And Christ is our advocate. He stands in for us. And so we won't ultimately be deceived. Be encouraged, friends, by this text. The enemy's time is cut short. Though he flails, remember that this accuser of the brethren, his time is short, his demons are running out of places to stay. He's been kicked out of heaven. He'll soon be kicked out of earth too. He's running out of places to be and to meddle. And we, ours is the kingdom that is coming. Ours is the kingdom of Christ. And we can wage war with the exact measures that are given to us in this passage. You remember those eight precious words from the onset this morning? They loved not their lives, even unto death. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I live really unsure of what it's going to be like if and when we suffer to the point of the shedding of blood. I live really unsure of how to apply texts like this we need you to ready us for when the battle is not just being prepared for, but, but when it's in our face. And we need to show you to show us today, not generally, but specifically, where we've made peace with the world in their river of sin. And we need you to convict our hearts that we might not be complicit any longer in their river of sin believing the words of the father of lies. We know on the authority of Revelation 12 that we won't be swept away, but we need the eagle's wings. We need the waterway swept up. We need, when we are in the desert, we need the nourishment that comes from you and you alone. You alone. Thank you for the promise of conquest and of sustenance in this present evil age. In Jesus' name, amen.